Hello, everybody. And of course, even if you don't have a body, I'm Elaine Pascal, and this is the Integral Stage Author Series, or at least it sort of is. We originally set this up to discuss Brian George's book, Masks of Origin, but for various so-called reasons, this chat has been delayed. And now, while we will certainly discuss Masks of Origin, this is likely to be a broader discussion of his writings, attitudes, and character more generally, as well as a way for he and I and you to get to know each other. So who is Brian George? Why does he have two first names? What has he written? Where does he think creativity comes from? What are his complaints about conventional consciousness? And just how enslaved is he to the dark old ones who I'm told still rule this world from beyond time and reason? Let's find out. Hi, Brian. (laughs) Hi, good to meet you. Uh, Before we do anything, where can people buy Masks of Origin? It's published by Untimely Books, so you can go to the Untimely Books uh, page that has a couple of buying options, uh, either through Untimely Books itself, or uh, if that doesn't work for some reason, it's available through Amazon. And there are some comments uh, from different writers and other people on their response to the book, uh, give you uh, some sort of a general idea. Terrific. Masks of Origin has this strong autobiographical weave through it. It sort of does this uh, mythic thing where it works history and psychology and autobiography and a variety of genres together. But the autobiographical component uh, intrigued me. And I wondered if as a way to get to know you, you might want to go through a couple of the events in the book or just a couple that you remember from your life. Like what are some key moments that you recall in your story that formed you, gave you insights, made you into the guy who's written these things now? So, yeah, the book is an exploration of key spiritual and creative turning points. It's not really a normal memoir uh, in any sense, because it's written from a dual perspective. Uh, On the one hand, I present things more or less in terms of the way I experienced them from the inside out, from the viewpoint of a person from a particular time, family, and culture. But there's another aspect of the book where I'm experiencing things from the outside in, from uh, the vantage point of some alternate aspect of the self, however that might be defined. Um, We tend to think of the self or the ego in terms of it's being like one particular thing with a location. But that's not really the way a lot of ancient cultures uh, experience things. I mean, there is the personal self, the persona, let's say, in ancient Greece. But in that tradition, it would be juxtaposed to the daemon. And a lot of other ancient traditions as well, the Zoroastrians have an Irvan and a Pravati, like a personal self and an aspect of the self that stays, in a sense, kind of at the edge of time, not necessarily before time in a state of complete unity, but, you know, with a much deeper memory and vantage point than the personal self. Uh, Egyptians, you know, spoke of uh, nine aspects of the soul. Kabbalists often speak of three souls, uh, like a breath soul, a blood soul, and kind of a group soul for humanity. Even though we're connected to things beyond that, those are the three souls that we primarily work with. In terms of more immediate traditions, um, the uh, the Yoruba from West Africa speak of an Ori and a Pori, like the personal head and the primordial head. And that's still very much of a current way of thinking, thinking in leukemia. My 
kind of view of this opposition has been there from a very early age, but the idea of how that might be tied into a personal destiny was clarified when I met my wife in the mid-90s. The same year that I went through uh, Shaktapad, 1990, she experienced uh, an initiation as a priestess of leukemia. And the idea of uh, divination and destiny to bring you into alignment with some sort of a pre-existent story. Destiny is a you know, kind of a very heavy, fancy word. And most people don't really think of themselves as having a destiny. I mean, that's something for Napoleon or whatever, maybe psychotic who thinks he's Napoleon. But I think from a kind of a larger vantage point, everybody does have some sort of a pre-existent story that can be envisioned uh, before birth that comes back kind of in a rush on the edge of death with uh, certain key turning points that are there from the beginning, even though they can be um, manifested in a variety of ways. We can you know, ignore the challenges and turning points when they happen, or we can move much more consciously into alignment with the idea of the uh, personal life as a kind of story or a set of challenges. And to do that, I think it really demands a much more vital and uh, conscious relationship between the personal self and however you would define that larger aspect of the self. So that in this way of thinking, the personal self, the ego, whatever, is not really just something to be jettisoned or transcended. Uh, it's something that just needs to be seen in terms of its original context. So that's one of the challenges in the book to kind of stay you know, grounded within the personal self, within my immediate background and psychology, but also to experience that from the outside in as being a part of a you know much larger set of interactive uh, relationships. So the idea of masks, let's say, in terms of the title, Masks of Origin, uh, the whole title is Massive Origin, Regression in the Service of Omnipotence, which is kind of a hard title to explain, but it suggests that uh, there's like a yearning for some state of you know, unbroken relationship to um, whatever existed before time, what exists beyond our normal perception of time and space. So that you know, one way to experience that is like a desire for some kind of power that we know we don't have. So that can manifest in terms of, let's say, attachment to a religion, uh, fanatic devotion to a political cause. Somehow we know that we're partial, broken in some way, and there's something really yanking us towards a much larger alignment, but we often just don't speak the language correctly. And that ends up, uh, that yearning ends up manifesting in ways that are pathological rather than restorative. So this, masks, uh I'm sorry. The, the, um, the framing fascinates me in terms of regression, in terms of a return, right? It seems like we all are, the way we're built, it's very easy for us to feel an original condition and a fall and a return. Do you feel like that's, that's the actual condition? Or do you think that's just a shape that's necessary for us to access that condition? And it may well be a movement forward rather than a regress or some other form of time in which those distinctions don't really apply. Well, we often do think in terms of, in terms of evolution, things becoming more complex, more perfect, more sophisticated, 
I had a paragraph in a recent piece that I published in uh, Dark Mountain. I get into kind of an ongoing debate with my editor, uh, Charlotte Dukan, about the use of the word uh, we in relation to really anything at all that's happened over the past 200 years. But, you know, I said something in the direction of, you know, we imagine that, uh, you know, we're moving towards some you know, greater, more sophisticated state that all, all past conditions are somehow converging upon our iPhones. But anyway, at least since the Renaissance, there's been like an increased sense of forward movement, which is maybe a particular expression of, um, you know, the Christian sense of, you know, Christ coming at the end of time or the Jewish sense of, you know, somehow history being a certain, uh, certain drama being played out that has a beginning and middle and an end. I tend to think in terms of recurring cycles. So uh, it's really a question of where you want to place yourself, your point of awareness within that. So I do think that, you know, there was or is a kind of a fall in the sense of something that was originally whole being broken. But I don't necessarily see that as being a bad thing. Often it is presented as being uh, like the eating of the apple, which leads to, you know, the experience of good and evil, uh, the expulsion from the garden, or in Gnostic terminology, um, uh, you know, there's a pleroma, some state of unbroken fullness or illumination or knowledge that uh, has somehow projected itself downward either through the actions of Sophia or then later through the, the powers of the, the archons, the demiurge, the, you know, even the forces of the planets, which were, I think, associated with the gods in ancient traditions for the archons became uh, oppressive rather than, you know, divine forces. So um, it was almost like uh, the stages, the layers of an onion, you know, each stage of creation was also a stage of uh, oppression or contraction. And in Kabbalah also, you have the idea of the, uh, the shattering of the vessels, uh, like an original state of well, originally nothing, then sort of the knowledge contained within nothing, and then the projection of that knowledge into a kind of visible illumination and creation of the spiritual and then material worlds. And then the idea that the the vessels of creation, the sephiro, uh, although perfect in a sense, were just not strong enough to contain the original illumination. So the act of creation was also an act of destruction, a shattering of those vessels, a projection downwards, a kind of contraction, if you think of the original unity as being you know, large and spherical, and then the earth is sort of like at the tail end of some process of demolition. But it can also be seen in in reverse fashion that 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 aspect of destruction is absolutely central to the possibilities of creation. That there was actually maybe some flaw even in the uh, original state of perfection. That uh, it uh, in the you know the Sufi phrase, uh, you know, I was a treasure that desired to be known. But the only way for that to exist was for that unity to be fragmented and for obstructions to be set up. So the whole idea of uh, a world in Kabbalah, uh, Olam, uh, simultaneously means uh, something hidden, uh, which uh, other meanings of the word are uh, eon, um, like a 
concavity of time um, or something that exists beyond the horizon. So that uh, we're sort of like projections through a series of slides um, that are distortions of the you know, primordial light, but also the only way, the only means through which the light can come to fully know itself. So that kind of brings me back to the title of the book with masks being uh, obstructions, like something that we hide behind, but also expressions, the only ways that we can fully uh, come to really experience ourselves, which I think is true for me creatively. I, if I were going to only write from a narrow personal perspective, which is the way you know, many writers do, uh, I'd probably be pretty tongue-tied. So I need to put on, even if it's an almost invisible mask that looks more or less exactly like me, I have to have you know, some sense of surface to hide behind, some sense of a persona that's organizing the creative forces of a particular poem or essay. Seems like there's a couple of options in terms of how we think about the, the transpersonal being related to the personal. Like one is this old idea that you can realize that and somehow escape from the personal to the transpersonal. One is that the transpersonal can be aware of itself as itself and where the personal is a mask. And then another is that there's some possibility of the transpersonal and the personal fusing to the point that it no longer makes any sense to distinguish them. Um, which of those do you feel most drawn to? Probably not the first one. Well, you know, it's, it's a drama that I've ex experienced probably from almost as, you know, from the time that I really became aware of myself as being a separate being. Actually, there's a paragraph I'd like to read that said at the uh, age of four, when I first became aware of like a split within the self that I've um, kind of played with it, you know, different ways at different times. <clears throat> yeah, please read that for us. That'd be great. I was very much aware in at least... Maybe by the age of six, my life kind of split into two parts. I was extremely happy as a young child. I just had a sense of kind of the air being golden. You know, I'd wake up early. I would listen to the birds. I would lose myself in like making cities in the sand for hours and hours at a stretch. I had almost no sense of time. <clears throat> and even though I was aware of certain things not going well, uh, there was almost no real sense of schism between myself and the world. My parents had separated when I was four, and I could sense that something was a little bit off, but I didn't quite believe it. You know, we had moved back to my mother's family's house in Worcester, and um, it was filled with relatives, though. They were you know, great storytellers, always telling jokes. I could steal everybody's food, um, you know, sort of the center of attention, so... It wasn't really till the age of six when I started school that I really became aware of, uh, you know, much deeper split between myself and the world. But this was a very odd experience that stayed with me that happened um, one morning on my back, back porch. It was just something that came and went, but it was stayed with me just because it was so incredibly odd at the time. It was like another person altogether had kind of stepped into my awareness and then pretty much moved back again. One morning when I was four years old, I was sitting on the third floor back porch of my family's three-decker. It was 1958 and Worcester, Massachusetts was still regarded as the industrial heart of New England. 
Looking out, I could see smoke puffing from tall smokestacks, a freight yard and a railroad bridge, hills with houses perched on them that rolled into the distance, and a few miles off on one of the highest hills, the Gothic architecture of Holy Cross College. How wonderful the day was. I could not have asked for a more perfect moment. My grandmother had given me a large chunk of clay. And then I was no longer looking out over Worcester. No, I was hovering above the Amazon, making snakes, canoes, and villagers out of the substance in my hands. As I worked, however, I became frustrated. It occurred to me that I had come to a creative, succumb to a creative block. I grew angry. I could not believe what I was seeing. My hands were small. My mind just barely worked. My imagination seemed like a blunt instrument. I remembered what it was like to create real snakes and villagers. Hmm. That's a particular way of some, saying something. Not necessarily that I was creating snakes and villagers, but it, some other experience of actually being over the Amazon and engaging on some supernatural level with what was below me just came back full force and kind of wrenched me out of my, what would otherwise be, you know, complete satisfaction on a sunny morning, sitting on the back porch, you know, making things out of a great block of clay. And um, anyway, that experience steadily intensified as I became a teenager and kind of an ongoing both dialogue and war between these uh, you know, personal and less personal aspects began to uh, unfold. I'm sorry, you were asking me those more specific question. <laughs> I forget that one. You know, uh, what's interesting to me right now is we've talked a little bit about time and return in the sense of the relationship between the personal and the transpersonal. And then there's also within the autobiography of connecting with certain states and moments and a kind of hyper narrative that might be nested within the early moments of a person's own life. But there's also a, this uh, possibility of historical regression, like to earlier civilizations, whether they be historical or imaginal, where we connect our feeling of how to discover these truths in life. Like, I'm wondering about you starting to live your life with these experiences. When do you start to connect that, if you do, with wisdom that you think has been passed down through generations to older cultures and the way that they approach these kinds of experiences? I think to jump to another um, creative turning point at the age of 16, something had changed. I had gotten kicked out of parochial school after political protest of the bombing of Cambodia. It's one of those things that seems sort of like a not particularly good experience at the time. I mean, I wasn't a particularly badly behaved student, but I also wasn't a well-behaved one. And I just decided, well, I don't really want to apologize. I think I was right. I was given the chance to stay. And I figured, well, time to move on. And probably saved my life. I finally managed to make it to a school on the other side of Worcester, where I grew up. I had grown up in a working class neighborhood with pretty horrific schools and finally ended up going to a good one in a more affluent part of the city. 
But that catalyzed a whole series of uh, you know, very abrupt, somewhat violent changes, which uh, were spiritual, creative, intellectual. And some sort of energy began erupting out of nowhere. It wasn't, this was actually before I had taken any hallucinogens, so it wasn't necessarily connected to anything in that direction. But I felt like a, just this kind of hole had been ripped open in my stomach. Well, I was being swept by oceanic currents and that the top part of my head had come off somehow. And so there was a sense of just being violently ripped out of myself. Um, and the, the present moment, as I you know, understood it until pretty recently, until then, had just ceased to exist. I felt that something almost unspeakably ancient was trying to emerge. I had no idea really what that was or how to relate to it. And I experienced that uh, challenge almost as a kind of violation. I felt that everything that I was seeing had become two-dimensional. I'd look out of my window at night and I would see the skyline, but it didn't really seem to exist in 3D space. I uh, became obsessed with the idea of the facade. So I would look out of my window and I would see like say factories and smokestacks in the distance. And I somehow became convinced that they were made out of cardboard, that they had no other side that behind it was just like a kind of a, a you know spasming void or a heaving an ocean or just um, like a depth of um, uh, immeasurable you know darkness or energy so it was very odd i had the sense of overwhelming nostalgia that came on me very quickly uh, which was an odd thing nothing really externally had changed other than going to a new school being more intellectually challenged, meeting some new people. But I had a sense that I had been suddenly projected like maybe a dozen years away from my childhood, which was just you know a few months or a year before. But it was an odd kind of a nostalgia. On the one hand, I felt that like the solid earth of my childhood had just been yanked from beneath my feet. On the other hand, there was the sense of incredible yearning for something uh, you know, distant, um, luminous, and dark at the same time, unspeakably old, but not necessarily something that I was just seeing. Um, I began reading Nietzsche at the time, and I was really struck by the idea that when you gaze into the abyss, the abyss you know, gazes back at you. That was the experience of something that really should be just sort of a landscape becoming fully alive and you know, kind of coming towards me very aggressively, I guess. It wasn't something I wanted to stop, but I had no idea really what to do with it. I felt that some sort of a ultimatum had been issued, but I wasn't really experienced enough to even begin to understand what the ultimatum was. It was a sense that somehow I was being called on to act as some sort of a messenger or mediator even though I didn't in any way have the either the knowledge or the uh, fluency with language to begin to you know to rise to that demand at the time. But in any sense, I it's pretty much quickly ceased to believe in the future as we imagine it as a kind of shiny technological object. Uh, even though as a child I was fascinated with, you know, like the hollow space flights and my friends and I had set up kind of like a little space capsule in 
John Sienko's garage and we stayed there for about three days listening to the radio and drinking Tang and kind of sleeping in our crinkly space blankets. We didn't really have any dependence on the media to speak of. We spent enormous amounts of time uh, hanging out, you know, camping, riding bikes, playing baseball. I think, you know, that sense of having a childhood without much in the way of distraction and just doing doing physical things, whether it was, you know, sports or camping or, you know, hiking or bike riding or even just talking on a front porch for hours at a stretch really was enormously value, valuable to me later on when I had a tendency to really become very spiritually ungrounded. But in any case, that's what happened at that age. I was just sort of like yanked out of myself in a way that pulled me uh, out of my personal self, you know, kind of out of sanity for a while, but also out of the uh, normal reflex opposition between the past and the future. So that there was a sense that uh, you know, many things had happened in the distant past and deep time of which we had become you know, totally unaware. And I was somehow being called to remember things that you know, barely even existed as dream images. But that was also the beginning of a much more dynamic relation with this other aspect of the self, which began appearing in dreams and as, you know, a voice sometimes audible in the back of my head, and also as just kind of a kind of a commandment to begin to do certain things, either both both with uh, visual artwork and also with uh, uh, you know, poetry. And uh, I journaled almost uh, you know, ceaselessly at the time trying to figure out what the hell was going on. What did you notice, if anything, about the process of writing itself? You know, you're using it as a tool to try to make sense of and then somewhere down the road communicate these experiences and these other forms of self. Um, what did it do? What, what did the use of that tool do for you? Was it successful, unsuccessful? Did it change the way you related to any of this to turn it into language? Well, you know, that really was my goal from an early stage on. There was a lot of, I guess you would call it, kind of late countercultural or mid-countercultural spiritual ferment in Worcester at the time. A lot of new friends at you know, my new school had already experimented with um, peyote, LSD, other hallucinogens. Um, there was a sense sense of many things happening, breaking open spiritually, you know, in that early Aquarian sense, but also of things, you know, being fairly dangerous. Uh, since a lot of a lot of people really didn't know what the hell they were doing and took one too many LSD trips in party situations and it, you know, kind of fried their brains or whatever. So even though I was very interested in moving in that direction as kind of an adjunct to what I'd already experienced, I was also, you know, very much aware of you know, the dangers of spiritual psychedelic exploration. And religious cults had started to pop up all over the place, and they would have very attractive girls out on the street, on Main Street, trying to kind of lure you into conversations, and people hanging out in libraries starting what appeared to be casual conversations, but were kind of oriented towards drawing you into some particular group. I had a conversation with a German architectural student who for some reason was uh, in Massachusetts and uh, ended up 
with me uh, being lured into dinner with the Moonies and was kind of on the outskirts of Worcester. I had no way to get back home. And I kept getting into like increasingly loud arguments until about two, two in the morning when I became so utterly obnoxious, they finally decided to get rid of me. But I didn't really have a sense that there was anybody I could turn to in terms of like an actual spiritual teacher. I did have senior uh, speech teacher who served pretty much as a de facto spiritual guide and psychological counselor. But writing was really my, writing and artwork were really my only forms of therapy at the time, which was particularly challenging because I became very much aware of the limitations of my knowledge. I had gone from going to kind of barely functional working class schools where the you know, goal of educating students uh, was pretty much one size fits all. And you know, it wasn't necessarily horrible if you were like a normal student. <laughs> I was a very peculiar student and um, needed probably a much more individual kind of attention that just was not available for anybody. But one, one of the odd aspects of finally getting to a school that I loved and meeting teachers that challenged me and students on the same wavelength was that it made me feel incredibly stupid. So the same time that I had a sense of uh, almost, you know, Promethean creative expansion energy, sense of spiritual dimensions, you know, beginning to break open. I was also very much aware of being tongue-tied and undereducated. And uh, so there was a, you know, not necessarily an unusual thing, but like a veering between, let's say, almost a kind of archetypal inflation or grandiosity and um, just an awareness of total personal unworthiness. But there was no no way really to put the two together other than visual visual work and early attempts at writing. What sorts of things were you reading at the time? Baudelaire, Rimbaud, Nietzsche, Pyramid of Yunas text, uh, Rig Veda, uh, Pindar, Pico, Della Mirandola. Uh, let's see, I made a slight list somewhere. So, um, Robert Bly, who came to Worcester, because he was friends with Frank Quinn, who later became a, a poetry teacher of mine, began systematically going through uh, all of the works of Young. The Clark University Library had uh, the whole of the Bollingen collection mm. and um, just incredibly thirsty for knowledge. Um, most immediately in terms of writers that affected me, you know, I was very much inclined in a light symbolist, surreal direction. I uh, was writing, I guess you would call it probably a kind of surrealist poetry, not very good surrealist poetry, but with um, you know, decent models. I think Rimbaud at that point, because he was like my age <laughs> and, you know, was also involved in a kind of explosive process of exploration. It was probably the, the most immediate model I mean, I obviously couldn't write anything anywhere nearly near as well. But there was one evening, I think, I can never remember if it was 16 or 17, 
I, I remember key turning points, but I often get exact dates a little bit scrambled up. I, I guess I was 17, but I had kind of like a creative explosion where I stayed up writing until about five in the morning and wrote about 16 pages of some probably totally absurd kind of spiritual, personal, mythological epic. That was good just in the sense of being being long and coming out with enormous force and involving you know, the kind of, I guess, lateral leaps of association that would come to characterize my writing later on. It took me complete, completely by surprise. But there was a sense of, you know, sort of like riding a wave or uh, kind of just barely being able to pull things into focus, but my mind and my hands working just quickly enough to get them down. The problem I had, let's say, with uh, peyote was things would just move too quickly. You know, I would see enormous amounts or my vision would really expand dramatically, but there would be a complete gulf between what I could see and what I could actually do. So my goal really from an early stage was to find some way to kind of physically, creatively manifest what I was seeing in very subtle states of awareness. And anyway, that one piece I brought to my cultural and intellectual history of Europe teacher, Sam Sleeper, who was a, a college professor trapped in a high school teacher's role. And he was both brilliant and extremely angry. <laughs> and uh, so he made me pretty much even more aware of the limitations of my knowledge and found two lines that he really liked out of the 16. But weirdly, rather than being depressed about that, I thought, well, I really have you know, got to apply myself and you know, maybe I'll do something in a year or two that he might find to be uh, more acceptable. <laughs> so it was odd. I, at the same time, I was incredibly restless and I guess, you know, still out, outwardly rebellious, both politically and otherwise. Experiences like that made me aware, too, of just um, the need for some kind of rigor, the need to really systematically apply myself to counterbalance that explosive creative energy with something um, much more deeply rooted and, I guess, rational, although I wasn't really thinking in terms of you know, reason at that time. But... I was aware very much of the need for kind of complementary aspects of intelligence. And, you know, at that point I could veer between, could veer between one and the other without any real sense of what a, a working relationship might be. You mentioned rim mode. And if, if I remember correctly, the phrase that stands out, at least in my mind, is the deliberate derangement of the senses. As right. A, yeah. Attitude, right. And the word deliberate, is interesting there because in your story you've been discovering these experiences <laughs> and sometimes they're rushing at you or being inflicted on you in a way at what point do you start to think of it as a a field of intentional or deliberate activity i think maybe i could generate some of these experiences maybe i need an inner practice in order to engage with them in another way well the other odd thing that began happening a little bit into this process, I guess when I was 17, is that I actually felt the presence of some kind of future aspect of the self. I mean, there was, let's say the 
kind of the aspect of the daemon, which was sort of outside of time altogether, but I actually began sort of like, almost like hearing myself in the present reciting pieces that I had written, uh, almost like incantations or whatever. Um, I could almost hear the words, not quite. I mean, I could hear the rhythm. I could hear, kind of feel the subject matter. I could uh, intuit the spaces that were being created. I could sense the kind of weaving together of um, you know, forces that was going on, the you know, kind of dynamic balance between uh, opposites. So there was a sense almost of like some physical presence in the future, um, almost like a presence at the end of time, you know, kind of a millenarian sense, but in a more personal way, a sense that there was like some little, almost like a you know, center of gravity or you know, luminous orb of some type, something that existed both as a presence, but also as a completed body of work. The idea of like an over, like a body of work. I think, uh, does over also mean egg? In French, you can, I think. <laughs> I think, but anyway, sort of like a body of work that was kind of like an egg that existed in and of itself. Mm -hmm. I really began to have a sense that my work already existed in some way that was completely impossible to define, but I could hear it, kind of feel it, taste it, you know, sense it as a kind of physical force that was pulling me towards it, as though everything in some way had already been accomplished. And I was just kind of too clouded to be able to really enact what uh, needed to be said or done. So there's a line in one of my essays, the shortest distance between two points may turn out to be a labyrinth. So that's the way things pretty much unfolded, that I could really feel the presence of some larger unity, which was also not just a you know metaphysical unity, but the unity of a future body of work, some future psychic spiritual integration that was in some way reaching back for me. Again, it really played with my sense of time. It wasn't like a fantasy of you know, like what I might be like when I'm famous or something. It was very visceral and also quite demanding and even terrifying in that it allowed me uh, almost no room to argue. I mean, I could sort of block block that sense of being under an ultimatum out. Um, I could just sort of engage in, you know, distraction and bad behavior of some type. But that really just sort of served to, uh, you know, obscure what was trying to unfold. It didn't, didn't break the connection and it didn't make things any easier. Um, so, Do you think those are options? Could you have broken the connection and could you have made things easier? It's a good question. Probably not. In the forward to Massive Origin, I, have, I in a number of places and throughout the book, I compare um, my sense of you know, having a personal story, let's say, which can be envisioned before birth, it functions as a kind of DNA. I uh, compare that in some ways to a novel. So a novel, to some extent, already exists as a completed thing. It can be weighed in the hand. Uh, you can read it you know, forward to backward, forwards, from the beginning to the end, <laughs> in a way that, uh, you know, you're in the novel, like the character, you're going page by page, you know, you're aware of what's happened, but not necessarily what's you know, going to unfold on the next page and the next chapter. 
But in some way, a novel also exists as a complete body. You could read it, you know, if you wanted to, uh, from the last word to the first, you could flip open to random pages to see what happened to come up. So I really have a sense that my, my life has been like that, that things have been very strangely interconnected. I'm very much aware of the possibilities of how we, even a single misstep can change the whole course of your life. For example, I was rushing to work at 6.30 one morning with two heavy bags on my shoulder. I tripped over a crack in the sidewalk and broke both bones in my wrist. I wasn't allowed to leave work for eight hours because there was nobody to replace me. The wrist had swollen up to like three times its normal size. I had utterly incompetent doctors and no health insurance and the wrist never healed well. And um, up until I had a, a corrective operation a couple of years ago, it was still giving me problems almost every day. <laughs> I mean, the hand was usable, but just, you know, there was always like a little bit of pain underneath that would sometimes come to the surface and sometimes almost disappear. It didn't really keep me from doing anything. The hand was strong enough, but it was just a reminder that, you know, one split second lapse of attention and who knows what could happen. I mean, the same thing can happen in a relationship, you know, things in early stages might be under a kind of like magic spell and everything goes perfectly and, you know, you're getting along wonderfully and having great adventures. And then either you or the other person happens to be in kind of a mood one day and then you end up saying like a few words, few sentences, too many things that can't be taken back. And then the cloud just sort of covers the relationship and you know that the you're experiencing the uh, beginning of the end. So I'm very much aware of, you know, how, you know, each each minute that goes by, we have like, a, you know, dozens of possible decisions we can make. Things are continuously kind of moving quickly into and out of manifestation. So it's, it's an incredible challenge to figure out how that might fit together with some larger perspective in which things very intricately tied together and waiting to happen or in some sense have already happened. I might jump to another passage. Yeah, please go ahead. So this isn't specifically about creative process, but more about that sense of kind of clashing perspectives uh, that somehow fit together in ways that really don't make any sense. This is from uh, actually an essay in the book, um, the snare of distance and the sunglasses of the seer. If we were to leap tens of thousands of miles into space, the earth with all our continents and clouds and cities and roads and industries would appear to be a blue and white marble. All life and death conflicts would be no, would be no more than abstractions. A tornado would be a kind of Sufi dance. A nuclear explosion would be the brushwork of an artist. In the forward to masks of origin, I have suggested that time might exist this way as well, as something that can be experienced close up or at a distance. In this forward, I compare a person's life story to a novel. In a novel, as in a near-death experience, all events are simultaneous. We could follow the story from one page to the next. We could also read from back to front, or we could open to a page at random. The novel is an object that can be weighed in the palm of one's hand. Like the earth when viewed from tens of thousands of miles away, it exists as a self-contained volume. Viewed from the inside, the earth is chaos, the fight for survival, human drama, 
many billions of overlapping choices every second. Viewed from the outside, there are the rhythmic variations of a shape. Viewed one way, time is measurable. Time is what is measured by a clock, as Einstein says. Viewed another way, it is a koan that stretches our intellects to the breaking point and then beyond. Time could also be imagined as a landscape, as a spiral, as a hypersphere, as the relation between an acorn and an oak, as a stage set, as a conjuration, as a snare, as a figure eight, as a labyrinth, and as an ocean. So both, uh, both life and books have this ambiguity about time, where they can be uh, forward and or backward, they can be cyclic, or they can be always already completed. But there's this other ambiguity about the book, which is between the writer and the reader. So obviously a part of your writing is to fulfill something you've already seen, you've already experienced to change or articulate aspects of yourself. <clears throat> but what do you think about when you think about the audience for these? What? You know, is there something like wishing to have an effect on the reader? And if so, what would that effect be, even given that that's only one of the interpretive aspects of this? Well, that is something I've wrestled with quite a bit. Um, I went through, when I was younger, when I first moved to Boston, I was lucky enough to kind of stumble into a circle of very challenging, mostly avant-garde writers. Again, it something that easily could not have happened in the particular way it did. I was at a poetry workshop at Harvard and I bumped into two people who had later become good friends, Jack Kimball and Don Quatrelli. And they invited me to a writer's get together at uh, 23 Joy Street in Beacon Hill the next night. Jack was a little bit on the abrasive side and I was not really sure even whether I was planning to go. He uh, was about 10 years older and was extremely confident to the point of being arrogant about his particular aesthetic approach. And he was complimentary, but made me very much aware of how young I was. And, you know, he thought I had considerable potential, but, you know, it was kind of on the edge maybe of something that could happen with the right guidance, which I found to be a little bit offensive. <laughs> anyway, went to, uh, decided to go anyway. I was in a very experimental mood and much more extroverted in those years in the early days in Boston than I was either really before or after that. And showed up at the time I was told to go, which I think was like six in the evening. And um, nobody had arrived yet. Uh, one of the people who lived at the place, Will Bennett, opened the door eating a hot dog, even though he later explained he was a vegetarian. Mm. This large cloud of marijuana smoke billowed out. And he was standing there in a bath towel and nobody else had arrived yet. So people began you know, trickling in probably around 7.38. And I had just cut my hair shortly before that. I had worn it pretty long when I was in high school in Worcester and just got fed up with it. And I'd cut it, I guess, in kind of like almost a proto-punk fashion, but that was a little bit before the onset of punk in Boston. And um, people were still wearing it long, so Anyway, I mostly just observed and people were reading, you know, fairly surreal work or kind of language poetry or 
and her work that they almost all saw as being on the cutting edge. And at the time, there was a little bit of paranoia about like FBI undercover agents or whatever, and I was unknown to the group and had extremely short hair. So everybody was kind of giving me a very strange look, like, you know, who is this person and why is he here and what is he up to? And finally, around two in the morning, um, things had quieted down a bit, and I finally had a chance to read. And I began reading, and my style on that at that point was something that uh, was almost like in the direction of Tibetan chanting. It was kind of like very slow and rhythmic and trance-like. And it had a very odd effect on the, the audience. People began like laughing hysterically and slapping the, slapping the floor and throwing pillows around. And I had no idea what was going on until afterwards. I just kept going until it was over. And I thought, you know, people probably didn't like it. Turned out to be the exact opposite. There was like some sudden release of energy. My work was so different from anything they had been expecting from somebody they thought might be an undercover agent that um, they just created the sense of uh, just kind of absurd, spontaneous release. So I was very lucky at that point to have people pretty much in the same wavelength who were all a little bit better than I was. And that circle lasted from about 1974 till probably the mid 80s or so. Um, but then went through kind of a long period of drifting away from the local uh, literary scene just came to seem very claustrophobic and repetitive and self-indulgent and felt that people were sort of fighting over small rewards. And I became much more spiritually focused and felt a yearning to study with meditation teachers and you know, people who had much more of a sense of formal discipline than I did. And for a long time in the 90s, um, I was really working on my own. I began an incredible number of projects, particularly after uh, receiving Shaktipat in 1990. It released just a nonstop flow of spiritual energy and intuition and uh, also verbal flow uh, in a way that really couldn't be harnessed and was not really comprehensible to, I think, anybody else, <laughs> and often even, even to me. For example, I had written one book, which finally is finished about a year ago, uh, To Akasha, an Incantation for the Crossing of an Ocean, which came out of a series of experiences where I was experiencing kind of a world flood, but I was both in the flood and under it and a part of various civilizations at different time periods in world history, but also kind of riding sort of on the top of a wave or a little bit over the wave being carried uh, through these you know, different cultures and time periods. And the book, which ended up, current version is about 38 pages, is an invocation uh, to Akasha, appeared as a kind of personal tutelary goddess, but also as just space uh, or memory in my understanding of it at the time. But it was a kind of, a uh, desperate cry for my memory to be expanded and deepened. And it worked, but the rather than forming any kind of a complete statement, the notebooks just kept piling up. At one point, they were actually about 10 inches high. And I had no idea how anything fit together. I just kept being given like more and more experiences and 
uh, verbal flights would, and, you know, kind of sort of part way connect with other verbal flights, but nothing really cohered. And my girlfriend at the time, Kim, was terrified that I might actually make her sit down and read the entire thing. Um, the little bit she read, she had you know, no ability to or desire to understand. So that, you know, was true of my work during a certain period. My wife, when we first met in 94, saw my poetry at that point as being a series of almost incomprehensible hieroglyphs. But then in 1998, my father died and his third wife, Judith, we hadn't, my father and I hadn't grown up together. My parents had split up, as I mentioned, I think when I was four. And I saw my father maybe once a year till I was about 11. Then he disappeared to, didn't know it at the time, to Mexico to start a company in a second family. And I didn't hear from him at all till I was almost out of art school when I was 23. So anyway, when he died in 98, I thought we had achieved some sort of workable harmony. Um, we didn't necessarily get along that well when we first got back in touch when I was 23. I was newly married and just out of art school. And it was wonderful to see him, but he was a high-powered businessman and thought I was completely wasting my time writing poetry. He said at one point that he had shown it to all of his most educated friends. And uh, one, one of his friends you know, who taught at Yale said it was a form of uh, highly literate masturbation, uh, which it might have been. But anyway, he kept trying to push me into going back to school to uh, study business. And at one point, it got so unbearable, I broke off all communication for about a year and a half. Then in, I think, 87, uh, we got back together and I was just grateful to be in touch. And I felt like it was just like a world of stuff to be explored and emotions to be worked out. And uh, it wasn't, it wasn't anybody who really revealed anything about his emotions. Whenever you tried to, uh, whenever I would try to get some little bits of family history or ask him about his his own childhood or you know earlier ambitions, he had wanted to become a classical cellist. You would find very convenient ways to just steer the conversation towards anything else, towards a particular conductor he had heard at Tanglewood or various trips that he had taken or what his house looked like in Mexico. Um, but then when he died, I realized there was just this incredible backlog of material that had to be kind of explored and integrated. And I really didn't want to give the eulogy, but Judith, uh, his third wife, insisted. And it was almost a, almost a kind of sweat lodge experience or something. I was awake for about three days straight, just going through all of these memories and trying to put um, experiences together in my head and, you know, form words um, and then sentences and paragraphs, which was the only way that I had finally managed to write it write some sort of a book out of that earlier invocation to Akasha. I just scrapped everything that I had written and tried to go with what I could actually remember, which you know, is often the, you know, the, that will often be the key images, the key experiences, emotions, whatever. So that's what I tried to do with the, the eulogy and it, it worked. I was also quite sick at the time. I had a horrible cold that came on when I was on my way out to uh, Denver. 
uh, could barely speak. Um, so I was drinking tea constantly and trying to sort of prepare myself to give the eulogy, which finally went over really well. But that gave me uh, just a whole different sense of uh, what I was being called to do as a writer. I realized that I had left out just enormous personal dimensions to my work. I was focused on kind of rarefied creative and spiritual flights, but in a way that had left me kind of dangerously ungrounded. So that was, that one experience probably was the uh, kind of the birth of my career as a prose writer. A much, much more refined version of it is, is in Masks of Origin, like two thirds of the way through the book. Then I had gone back to school in 2000 to uh, get my teaching credentials. I had graduated from art school, but I uh, felt like a strong desire to teach. I come from a family of teachers and it seemed like a natural thing to do. And I was uh, married to my second wife. We had uh, our daughter, Liz was about three at the time. And then I had no choice really, but to write tons of prose when I was in school often about things I didn't particularly want to write about and things like um, lesson plans that you know, demanded very precise organization, but it was enormously valuable. And uh, then uh, teaching career didn't really work out. I, there were almost no high school positions open and I ended up teaching junior high for a while, but I just am not very much of a natural disciplinarian. And I realized I had to decide you know, do I want to teach or do I want to write? Because it seemed really that there was almost nothing left at the end of the day. Then, really starting in 2000, I began publishing every every couple of months in Reality Sandwich at a time that um, the internet was kind of like a shiny new thing and really wide open to possibilities of actual dialogue without too much in the way of interference from trolls. It wasn't very heavily politicized. And it was kind of a trial by fire in terms of actually getting writing in a way that was I was able to communicate with you know, people who wanted to read it, who might have been interested and sort of got the general idea, but, you know, lost a lot of things along the way. And uh, so my process of revision since then has been to make things simultaneously clearer, more rigorous and more uh, adventurous at the same time. I'm imagining that you actually were an undercover FBI agent this entire time. <laughs> uh, I would love to uh, get to this list of creative virtues that you sent to me. Uh, but maybe before we do that, you could tell me what you think of when you think of creativity. What is creativity to you? Let me read maybe another piece in that direction then we can get yeah, to the sure. creative virtues. So I have two, two pieces that deal with the idea of um, expressing the inexpressible or the idea of the writer as world space. I don't know which one might be more appropriate. Let's go with expressing the inexpressible. That's been on my mind lately. Okay. We can maybe circle back to the other one toward the end. So I'm going to read the first section of an essay called I left at dawn for the eternal city. It seems that I've misplaced several days. Um, the whole essay is up in three sections on online magazine called Scene 4 International Magazine of Arts and Culture with a lot of artwork as well. Uh, some, of, some of my artwork is up there. 
Uh, anyway, this is this is a piece I added kind of toward the very, very end of the the essay. I mean, first section in the essay, but it kind of sums up the challenge of writing in a particular way. Can one speak from beyond the place where language ends? I would do so. I have spent five decades in exploring and learning and testing how to do so. There are many who would claim that no such thing is possible. And even if it were, they say, this would not be a good idea. When I point out that there were, in fact, any number of poet seers in the past, they argue that these poet seers would back up their position. If I present them with an esoteric poem, they will say, this makes no sense. Why can't you just say what you mean? If I present them with a tightly argued but freewheeling visionary essay, they will say, this is prose. Everyone knows that prose cannot express the inexpressible. What is the poor poet to do? Should the seer see through someone else's eyes? He already tends to do this, but he is not any less disturbed. To whom does the poet speak? For whom should the seer see? Read only by a fraction of a fraction of 1% of his contemporaries, uncertain of whether his city will soon be underwater, concerned with his daughter's happiness and safety, with the earth she will inherit. The poet must go where his vision takes him. He does not predict, he observes. He is often overwhelmed by the sense of having seen certain things before. If the wind blows, he must say, I have been there. If squeezed through a population bottleneck equal to that of the younger dryads, he must again say, I have been there. If the silence is so loud as to be painful, if the earth shrinks to a point no bigger than an atom, if he is asked to speak in a language that does not yet exist, he must again say, I have been there. He must speak of what he sees, trusting, perhaps foolishly, that space itself has ears. Are his critics right to scoff at his pretenses? He is at least as aware as they are of the outer limits of language, of what it can and cannot do. His own poems sometimes fill him with disgust. His only option, to conserve his energy by pouring himself out. I feel very close to that one. Um, <laughs> my attempts to express the inexpressible and my need to have been there. Um, and it's interesting to think about, like this is maybe a segue into the 10 creative virtues, is that you're describing a creative temperament or character there, right? There's a type of person who would hear that and resonate with it it's not the majority of the population but it is some particular seemingly natural minority of the population that's predisposed toward uh, a certain kind of creative life a certain kind of self-search and then yeah I'm, I'm curious about how and why you feel driven not just to be creative but to almost be a theorist of creativity at the same time Right? You're, you're looking at how it's constituted in creative types. You're looking at a breakdown of the qualities or characteristics that might express it or be able to increase it. Um, do you think of yourself as, as a, a creativity analyst in some respects? 
I wouldn't use the word analyst. Um, I try to write in a way, though, that's very tactile. I want to kind of take readers on a journey, not just to convey information, to analyze, to describe whatever. Actually, I wrote toward the end of a list somewhere. Thought I did. Anyway. Um, I think one confusion is that people really have a very limited sense of what language can do or what it's for. People think that language exists to convey information, to uh, prove a point, to analyze, uh, sometimes to express personal emotions, to tell stories. I mean, all of that's true. But I think it has you know, also far more primal functions to invoke, to exercise, to cast from a center to call from a periphery. It has very primal world creating functions or world centering functions that um, really um, call into question our suspicion of language. I think it's often much easier for us to just say, oh, well, silence, spiritual expression is uh, inexpressible, so why should we even try? All of the great teachers have told us that, you know, the beyond is, you know, beyond human comprehension. You know, all words are inadequate. So those who don't know speak, those who know are silent. I mean, that's, you know, something very often repeated. So often really it's become true. But I don't, I don't think it's really true in the history of spiritual traditions. Uh, Rumi, I think, uh, his uh, Mathnawi is the longest poem in the Persian language. The uh, Mahabharata is, um, I think, eight times as long as the Iliad and our Odyssey combined. You know, Blake certainly felt completely confident, whatever the limitations of his language, you know, which is somewhat a little bit rickety, but felt fully confident to convey a very, uh, certainly to the people of his time, obscure cosmology in very ambitious terms. I think often it's just, um, it makes us kind of aware of our smallness of our awkwardness and stirs up, I don't know, just things we don't want to acknowledge in ourselves, you know, certain limitations, certain unresolved conflicts. But I think our reasons for not wanting to express the inexpressible are in themselves somewhat suspect. One thing I greatly appreciate your, about your work is just your incredible recklessness and playfulness and sense of humor in trying to do that. Your, you know, delight in contradicting yourself, your, uh, you know, wonderful uh, kind of expansive at-homeness with paradox. Very often people will talk about paradox or non-dualism or uh, kind of reclaiming certain capacities for language. Like when I used to write for Reality Sandwich, people were constantly theorizing about altered states of awareness or return to the primordial uh, uh, kind of expanding into the newosphere or whatever, but they would always do it in just incredibly boring, predictable, uh, <laughs> flat-footed academic and journalistic prose. And you know, one thing that really delights me about your work is its sense of play, that, you know, you handle terminology in a way that I, you know, couldn't even begin to, to attempt to equal. You know, you're very much at home and... Uh, 
both traditional and you know contemporary philosophical and spiritual traditions and can play with terminology in the same way that you know I might play with uh, just surreal images but you also do it in a way that's without like heaviness or claustrophobia you're not necessarily indebted to systems you're trying to see you know what a system might offer you how it might connect to other systems but there's always a quality of uh, uh, kind of dancing mischievousness to your work that uh, I'm just beginning to really explore. I mean, I've only known you known about your work for a couple of months, and the deeper I go into it, just the uh, uh, the more invigorating it becomes. Well, I very much appreciate you saying that because those are qualities that really. Uh, earn my respect and arouse my interest in the writers that I favor. Uh, you know, Nietzsche was one of those in terms of being really spiritual and critical and musical and light-footed and acrobatic all at the same time. Um, yeah. There's such a misunderstanding of Nietzsche, I think, you know, particularly because of association, you know, due to no fault of his own with uh, Nazism. Actually, during the period of his insanity, whatever that comprised of, he called on Europe to declare a preemptive war against Germany and ordered Kaiser Wilhelm to go to Rome to be shot. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty resolutely uh, pro-Jew and anti-German in quite a lot of the writing. <laughs> and, you know, pro-Mozart, anti-Wagner. <laughs> yeah. That was always one of the things that fascinated me the most. Um, I've written about this a little bit, but I grew up in a time when classical music just seemed like one homogenous, old-fashioned thing. And it wasn't <laughs> until reading Nietzsche, feel, I'm like, oh, you, someone could be passionately in favor of one and against the other, you know, in favor of uh, Bizet and opposed to Wagner, right? I didn't even know what to make of a conflict like that. I There was so much I needed to learn to be capable of even knowing what the sides in the battle were. <laughs> well, because I was approaching Nietzsche from kind of his public image, I was really shocked to discover the conflict with Wagner, who was a friend of his, at least at the beginning. And his love of Mozart, would yeah, I just would not really associate with Nietzsche. But, you know, there is that that conflict or not conflict really but that weird juxtaposition in Nietzsche of lightness and heaviness of uh, the idea of uh, incredible depth but also like dancing on the surface of the ocean yeah his uh, his need uh, to try to find that lightness to try to convert his heaviness into a lightness that would make himself bearable to himself and that um, written as a journey across his books that really, uh, I resonate with that. But yeah, he was a major influence on me as a writer, just partly just the incredible incisiveness and energy of the style, but also his love of paradox. You know, I've often gotten into conflicts with editors who want me to refine certain points I'm making the way you do in, you know, like writing a essay for graduate school or whatever. You know, you have to be very careful about defining all of your terms and then you, you know, have to very cautiously qualify something, then qualify your qualification. I, I had written an essay for my friend Peter Gerstein um, about his uh, exhibit with Carolyn Newberger a couple of years ago at the beginning of the pandemic. And he'd wanted me to write something initially just for a short gallery statement, then it expanded into a catalog. 
and we were finally able to uh, get it uh, posted on scene four. That was when I first discovered the, the magazine. But although he provided invaluable creative feedback for what turned into be like a third turned out to be like a 13 page essay, he kept wanting me to overqualify points. He, um, he's a librarian at Harvard and you know he takes exactitude very seriously and really believes in being very specific about everything that he says. But my own sense is that you know you really lose more than you gain by being overly fussy as a prose writer. I much prefer, actually it's something that you do, to kind of state something fairly boldly and then maybe state something in a very different way, even that contradicts it. And then sometimes just let the reader find their way between the two positions or, you know, go on to kind of very subtly uh, weave between them or even jump to a third position that refers back to them without necessarily being an immediate synthesis. But I'd like to leave gaps in my writing that will serve as kind of creative prompts. So there's a lot of sentences that might at first be maybe a little bit of needlessly obscure from some people's you know, vantage points, but that are really intended to function as, as uh, catalytic prompts or koans, as you know, kind of calls to leap from one mode of awareness to another. The uh, finicky editor thing reminded me of an article I wrote for Revision Magazine, I think last year, but there was a long back and forth about my use of we trying to very clearly specify. That just happened to me. Was... <laughs> and it's, I get the point they're making and I, I was willing to clarify, but I'm not sure that was an improvement uh, to the sensibility or the tone or the rhythm or my satisfaction with the orchestration of those words. No, that's so funny because yeah, the <laughs> one of the pieces that I just published about a week ago in um, Dark Mountain uh, I get into a long-running debate with Charlotte Dukan, uh, my editor for the piece, about my use of the word we. I didn't want to be overly specific in the way that I used it. And I was referring to like what we have thought over the past couple of hundred years or whatever, and she thought it was way too general and wanted me to like define it more specifically, but then she wasn't really happy about the way I defined it. And I was like begging her, let's just stick with the use of the word we. <laughs> And people can find their own relation to it. You know, I don't really want to define it in terms of us versus them or various subgroups or oppositions. You know, readers can be trusted to make certain judgments to decide how much they want to identify with a particular position, you know, for or against. Um, and I, yeah, I don't like writing that's overly fussy. I like writing that you know, can be extremely refined, but that's also uh, very bold. I, you know, one of, yeah. I like the boldness. And I also think there's a, you know, when something similar to trance or something similar to state change is part of the communication of a piece of writing, then there's a role for certain kinds of vaguenesses and ambiguities in that. And you were telling the story of reading that poem and having it uh, exert a kind of trance-like effect on people, partly because of its structure and partly because of your reading. But when a person does inductions in hypnotherapy, say, it's a special arrangement of words. And part of the particular thing you're going for is a certain suggestiveness that sometimes needs to have less precision or less anchoring or less oh, yeah. in order to do its job. No, I think that's you know one thing that people really don't get 
particularly these days. I mean, I think people were more open to it, like when I moved to Boston in the 70s, because people were actually sitting in rooms or bookstores talking to each other, reading poems to each other. Time really was very different. We're so used to being like continuously absorbed and distracted and going from one thing to another. It's really the complete opposite of the way I grew up. Yeah, it's one thing I guess we'll get to in the creative virtues, but the capacity to kind of actively do nothing to me is so central to creativity. And it really has to do with communication also. If you're kind of rushing to get through a piece or just scanning for information online, not only are you reading in a different way, your your whole body is different. Your brain functions in a different way. You just can't process information in, in any way at the same depth or with the same sense of you know, relation to various parts of the body. Even just holding a book in your hands, I think, creates a very different reading experience than scanning for information, even if it's exactly the same information online. There's an additional element to the digital form, at least you know, Facebook, Twitter, and things like that, which is the prompt for immediate evaluation. So like I find if I write something, people will scan the first sentence, <laughs> look for the theme, and then give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down because they're structurally prompted to quickly provide evaluation feedback. So there's not only no time to process it, but you have to put your processing brain aside and try to make a judgment of it right away. I think there are good and bad ways to do that, though. For example, my wife and I, actually for almost 20 years, we first we're part of a group of revolving salons. We call them salons, just it's kind of a general term, but it would be gatherings of uh, writers, artists, and musicians, beginning initially just with a group of friends who all had adult jobs and wanted to you know, kind of maintain their creative energy. And we would meet uh, at each other's houses and you know, revolve the, uh, the salon between different locations. So that began fairly small and just with a kind of an intimate group. But in 2011, uh, my wife and I began hosting a kind of a more expanded version of it. I had been working as a organizer for Evolver, uh, Evolver Boston from about 2008 to around that time. But it was, an, it was like herding cats or pushing a string. You know, there were theoretically all sorts of people very interested in uh, uh, let's say world transformation as a general term, but new states of awareness or whatever, new possibilities of group organization. And I met incredible numbers of you know very creative people. I mean, mostly writers, artists, musicians. But um, it, there was also a, an attempt at central organization or you know, even on a worldwide scale. So each... Uh, each month there would be separate subjects that we're supposed to address. I mean, the goal was to bring together, to weave together groups already in existence. But uh, I made a list of some of the the different subjects that we uh, covered, but we would lurch from one to the other. Uh, So uh, the uh, urban gardening, the gift economy, intentional communities, alternative health, climate change, ancient mythology, psychedelic shamanism, the relationship of technology and the psyche, the Newosphere, the Mayan calendar, reincarnation, polyamory, trend states, crop circles, and UFOs. But let's say people involved in political organization would have absolutely no interest in UFOs 
or people involved in urban gardening would have no interest in ancient mythology. So we might have like 40 people for one group um, if we were talking about Brazilian, contemporary Brazilian shamanism. And the next one, um, say urban gardening or whatever, you know, there'd be six people. So there was just no way to really maintain forward momentum or to actually create like a real energetic body out of these diverse theoretical elements as well and well intentioned as the uh, the effort was and as amazing as the people were uh, there was just no natural cohesion but one other problem was that people were just not used to doing things in physical time and space this was already at a time when people people were living uh, kind of more than half of their lives online although it's gotten even more dramatic since then and the idea of just being like together for a long time in a room, kind of figuring out what to do <laughs> and how to, you know, organize the group or, you know, stages that have to be followed. People would often just kind of veer into these grandiose fantasies. And I would keep trying to bring them back to something doable, small, what to do next week. You know, how does this actually fit with that? And it, it never would work out that way. So... I never wanted to be the one person in charge. I always wanted to be like second in command because I really was aware of the potential for uh, burnout with that kind of organization. Uh, I was in, like involved in a high school news, underground newspaper when I was a senior. We had about 40 meetings. And by the end of it, we hadn't even decided on the title for the newspaper or put out a like a four-page copy. <laughs> we had lots of fun, you know, at the meetings. But So anyway, after kind of the impending burnout of the Evolver experiment, my wife and I decided to refocus um, the idea of the salon. So I kind of collected kind of the most creative people from the Evolver experiment, writers, musicians, artists, and integrated them with our existing group of friends. And then people were also invited to um, kind of open up the group at the edges. We were trying to keep it to a coherent size, though, it would usually go between about 15 and 26. But I found that to be like the, uh, probably the only size group that I really want to be involved in. Something really on a human scale where everybody knows everybody that is open to, kind of open at the edges, kind of like the uh, idea that you would find in uh, some African societies where you would have an almost complete enclosure, but one part open to the bush. So we would always be bringing in new people, but also maintaining a certain coherent energy with the, uh, the people already in the group. But one thing that we uh, really wanted to experiment with was just sort of bending or even breaking people's sense of time, getting them out of the uh, kind of the distraction economy. So we would often begin, begin the event about five and we would have food that everybody could bring, although we'd often have a lot of our own set out be food in the dining room with, you know, some wine or whatever. And people would uh, just sort of gather and socialize and talk for about an hour. Then we would start, start the event with instructions, which were pretty important that people would have 10 minutes to present. Then there'd be like another five or 10 minutes for feedback, but we didn't want any kind of rush to judgment. We didn't want any harsh critiques or, you know, people saying, well, you know, that's all very well and good, but this is the way I would do it, which is often not the way artists or writers typically respond. <laughs> so the 
the initial goal was just to say, well, this is what I saw, this is what I heard, this is what I felt. Uh, then, you know, you can ask questions of the, uh, the person who presented. But the idea was to keep it you know, fairly soft and non-judgmental. And so that op opinions would gradually arise out of the interaction, but not so much that people would sort of just immediately impose their own viewpoints, much more that the like insights would arise out of the process of questioning. And it worked. Uh, it, we continued right up until the pandemic. And unfortunately, whenever we make plans, there's like some <laughs> new variant that seems to pop up. But events anyway would begin about five, they would really get going about six, 6.30. People would, you know, kind of come and go depending on their work schedule or if they were, you know, coming out of some other event uh, earlier in the evening. But the, uh, the events would often go on with little breaks for, you know, food or whatever, sometimes until like 12.30, 1.30 in the morning, but with no sense of any of the restlessness that you would normally expect with that kind of time period. Like I could never probably sit through a six hour movie now the way I might've been able to back in the seventies, you know, when directors were experimenting with filming somebody sleeping for <laughs> six hours or whatever. But, um, but yeah, people would move into a much, well, not necessarily even that much older sense of time, but the sense of time that I grew up with, the sense of time I experienced, let's say, when I was uh, four or five, I lived in a house, three-decker full of relatives. And in the evening, people would sit out on the back porch and just talk and tell stories for about that length of time. Like, they would go out after supper and, you know, stay up until, like, all of the traffic died away in the background. And, you know, maybe around midnight or a little bit after, finally begin to wind things down. But... People had no expectations of being like enormously entertained or no uh, like desire necessarily to kind of rush a person to the end of the story. Um, there was just a sense that, you know, each person would have something to contribute. Things would have kind of a natural rhythm of rising and falling. With a, an organized salon, it's a little bit different because people at the beginning would sometimes want to kind of monopolize attention. So you wouldn't want somebody like, reading reading or you know playing or whatever it happened to be for 45 minutes at the beginning and then people at the end would you know be squeezed into like five minute slots so it was a little bit tricky to kind of organize things without seeming dictatorial but mm -hmm. you know as as events went on through the years it uh, particularly with people that were used to the format uh, it became very very natural and um you know uh, sometimes things would you know go, go a little bit over or whatever but it really felt like a kind of organic way to do things. And you would move into really an altered sense of time without anything being forced. So you were, you set up these uh, loosely structured intersubjective containers where people underway shared modification of their sense of regular time. And, you know, in terms of <laughs> segueing back to the creativity list again, do you think this made them more creative as individuals? Do you think it raised a collective creative energy? I do, yeah. I mean, from what people said, you know, and often, well, it's the way I tested out my own work. You know, I would often, you know, revise a piece 10 times and have been working on it very intensively up until the evening of the salon. 
and I would read a piece and I'd be two lines in and go, oh no. <laughs> I mean, just reading it for other people. I mean, not necessarily even sensing any critical feedback, but just really hearing it out loud and sending your energy into a group and seeing the way it circled and came back, you know, whether it like ran into any blockages, whether some people might just be tuning out, whether, you know, certain things that might seem very challenging would just like, you know, like sink into an incredible depth. Other things that you thought would be immediately accessible just, you know, didn't connect somehow. But it, it's something you really, I wasn't able to predict. It was um, really a kind of incredible workshop. Um, and I think it, it really functioned in the same way for most of the people involved. You know the term MacGuffin from cinema? Remind me. I, it's, it's like the notion of a, an unimportant lure that draws mm -hmm. someone in. So very famously at the beginning of Psycho, this woman's escaping with this money and we keep following the money. And they're oh, right. Yeah. right? Yeah. But it turns out that had nothing to do with the movie. She's actually <laughs> right. on her way to get murdered at a hotel. <laughs> So there's this, uh, yeah, this lure that draws people along. And I'm noting we probably have about 10 minutes left. And so I've been constantly prompting on this virtues list, but maybe it's just a MacGuffin. Maybe it's a trick because let's, we don't need to go uh, into it. It might be better to spend this last 10 minutes uh, reading any other piece you wanted to share with us at the end. That might be good. Let me actually read something that I had wanted to read to you uh, just because I thought you would like it. And then I'm sure we can sneak in the, Top 10 creative virtues, All even right, if we don't have a chance we can to get in. talk about them. Uh, actually, if people are interested in those, they uh, the reason I wrote them, I was doing a couple of interview sessions with Greg Kaminsky and Billy Hepper for a cult of personality. And during the second uh, interview, they asked if I had any anything that I wanted to offer readers in terms of suggestions for their own creative process or whatever. And I uh, improvised these in about 10 minutes afterwards. <laughs> But um, yeah, let me read uh, another piece that I thought you would like. So this is, again, sort of an example of my attempt to combine creative process and yoga. This is another piece from The Snare of Distance and the Sunglasses of the Seer. The emptiness that is space shows no sign of disturbance. Space is, for there is no way for it not to be. Yet no line divides what is from the depths of the non-existent. In this next to nothing, there is resonance. There is the hum of every incantation from past worlds. Each terror is an egg in the hand of a blind magician. Each neurotransmitter is a key that fits the lock of a missing door. Once the Kundalini hid its teachings inside forms, as a test of whose skill and camouflage they served and from whose potency they had been created. We must later on help to free these teachings from their forms. We must break the Sumerian seal that turns us back from the catastrophic depths of our own breathing. Having once been set in motion, the Kundalini stirs up and expels a volcanic flux of images as it burns through every obstacle in its path. It rips continents like sheets of paper it dismantles the prosthetic bodies of the gods. It unravels all of the complexes that defend us from our fears, leaving no means by which blessing can be sorted from disaster. It expunges every trace of the antediluvian records, all arts and sciences, 
yet without even a small detail being lost. But why is this necessary? You might justifiably ask. It is possible that it does things just to show us that it can. It is possible that the Kundalini simply likes to play. Or alternately, it is possible that our childhood is over and that finding ourselves cold and naked on the coast of a dead ocean, we must figure out how to grow up. Tertullian writes, I believe in the resurrection because it is impossible. So too, at the tail end of the Kali Yuga, if access to our first mode of vision would now seem to us impossible, it is for this reason that we must treat our abandonment as a test. Good vision may depend on our having nothing to lose, no cause to advance, no belief whose planks have not been shattered by a storm. At some point, cooling down, upon finding that there are no laws left to violate, the Kundalini may become much nicer than it was. Then, as smoothly as a bell tone through the zodiac, or as the arcing of a current through the ocean, it will move on to its predetermined end. Each atom will have 108 eyes. Thank you, Brian. If people are listening from developmental theory communities, as I know you are, that's uh, poetic, structural, developmental, multi-perspectival, transrational non-dualism. <laughs> so that's pretty legit. And I love the image of the egg in the hands of the blind magician. <laughs> so, yeah, this gives you a sense of the tactility of my approach. I'm not really an analyst or a theorist, even though I deal in sometimes kind of large-scale concepts. I really want to present everything in uh, a way that relates to my own body and that in some way you know, probes its way into the psyche and body of the reader or listener. Much easier to do actually like in a salon situation where people are physically present sure. and you know I can also sink into my own energy and cast yeah. a kind of a spell. So this is a bit of an artificial scenario to be on this device with each other. But what even here, what what happens in your body when you read that? Well, I'm just figuring out how to you know uh, yeah. live, live and you know breathe in this format. So um, yeah, I'm reading from like a more superficial level than I normally would in like a late night situation with you know small salon group. But I'm having fun too. I mean, it's been really enjoyable to talk with you and. Uh, I'm profoundly grateful to uh, technology on this particular scale, you know, where it does allow for communication that otherwise wouldn't exist. I mean, I wish it wouldn't exist for so many silly purposes, but for me, this is, you know, the one great thing that technology can do in terms of introducing and connecting you to people that you would never really otherwise have a chance to meet. Yeah, there's certainly something we can do here that we can't do with uh, letters and phone calls. <laughs> uh, so do you want me to try to squeeze in the 10 creative virtues? Uh, no, I mean, maybe we'll include a link or something of those, but I, I sort of love the idea that they keep getting mentioned, but don't get shown. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can always talk again at some point. <laughs> yeah, I would love that because I feel like... Uh, we're sort of slowly building a rapport, and I feel like the way we're having our conversation uh, weaves in and out of of the normal structure of a recorded discussion. So that's something that feels like it has a future. <laughs> that's the way I experience things. You know, I, 
at this age, particularly, my senses, um, things that seem to be very separate when I was going through them are all kind of very closely, paradoxically interwoven in a way that does form a kind of living body, but one that really has become more and more, vis more visible in retrospect. Anyway, for anybody who is, is interested in the top 10 creative virtues, my discussion with uh, Greg Kaminsky and Billy Hepper will be uh, at some point available on our cult of personality, and we spend a good portion of the last part of the, uh, the talk uh, exploring the creative virtues. Mm, terrific. Thanks very much, Brian. It's been a, a pleasure and an intrigue getting to know you better. Uh, and uh, just beginning to discover your own work and looking forward to, you know, plunging much more deeply into it. Okay, great. Let's uh, come up with an excuse to talk again sometime. Oh, definitely, even if it's not online. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye, Brian. Take care.